you would, please turn with me to Acts chapter 2. So this is my third time with you all, and uh, I am so grateful to be here again with you. And uh, a couple things. One, just want you to know um, that uh, the church that I belong to and I pastor at, Grace Evangelical Free Church in La Mirada, uh, our elders, we've been praying for you, and we will continue to pray for you, especially in this season of transition uh, we're excited what the Lord is doing in your midst, uh, and, and we're excited to see what he's going to continue to do in the days ahead. Um, you have uh, become very dear to us. That's been the case for, for some years because we've known Jeremy and, and some of you through him and his family, but, but over the past several months, you've only grown um, in, uh, or we've only grown in affection for you in our hearts. Um, also, I just look forward to being with you. Uh, it's, it struck me, and if I could just say as an aside, so this is my third time being here, and uh, this is my third time having heard a pastoral prayer prayed at this church. And as I was anticipating this Sunday and looking forward to worshiping with you all, I found myself anticipating that pastoral prayer. Um, those are beautiful. And I hope you're aware of that. I hope you know that you have shepherds who are seeking to care for you and shepherd your souls through these various things that are being prayed for. Uh, Any number of things could be prayed. That prayer could last any number of minutes. But those prayers have been so obviously carefully crafted so that you might be discipled into thinking about and caring about what is worth caring about. So that you might know how to pray, that you might know what it looks like to go before the Lord on behalf of others or a group. And and there's so many things I can commend about that, but what it demonstrates to me is that your shepherds love you. And and they desire to see you grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. And so I just want to encourage you, uh, as a brother to brothers and sisters, lean into that sort of shepherding care. You're in good hands. Well, uh, I have been thinking quite a bit lately about the church, and in particular, the mission of the church. And, and as I think about the mission of the church, I think that can most easily and quickly be summed up from Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them. But, but the key uh, commandment there is to make disciples. I think that's what we're meant to be doing as a church. And, and we can get that wrong. We can put emphasis in strange places there. Uh, making disciples is an ongoing process, uh, but it certainly includes the initial act of a person becoming a disciple. That's part of what it means to make a disciple is evangelism. Um, but it also means the ongoing formation of a person into a sincere and devoted follower of Jesus. And, and so... That's what we're to be about as a church, is making disciples. And so how are we ever going to be able to accomplish that mission? How could that be possible? If you stop to think about changing a person's heart or working at forming a person's heart, uh, their selves, that's uh, quite the task. And so that question of how 
to make disciples uh, has stirred in me, and, and it's led me to passages like Acts chapter 2, which is where we're going to be this morning. And, and, and so my, my hope and my desire for you as you are entering into a new age of being a church, is that you would be a church that cares deeply about making disciples and that you would have something inside of you, some knowledge, so that you might be able to pour yourselves out with as much zeal and as much vigor to make disciples, knowing that that's actually possible because of the passages like what we're studying today. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, and we're going to be looking... um, at a few verses, and then uh, when, uh, when I come back in about a month or so, uh, we're going to just continue along with that. So sort of a two-parter here, if that is okay with you all. And uh, today, from Acts chapter 2, we're going to be seeing three things. One, the age of the Spirit has dawned. The age of the Spirit has dawned. Two, the church has been unleashed. And then three, finally, results will vary. So that's where we're going to be today. Uh, I'm going to pray and have us dive into our text. So please pray with me. Father, we thank you so much that we can gather together as your people today uh, and that I can be with this dear church. And Lord, I pray that now as we sit under your word and worship you through this preaching and teaching and sitting under of your word, Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us uh, eyes to see that you would make our hearts tender to what you have for us. And so moved by your spirit, we pray. Pray us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Again, we're going to look at Acts 2, starting with verses 1 and 4. And what I'm wanting you to see here is that the age of the spirit has dawned. So uh, read along with me, or follow along with me as I read aloud. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. All right. Um, Have you ever had someone make a promise to you that was just a little too good to be true? Um, One of my really dear friends and a roommate of mine when I was in my undergrad back in Birmingham, Alabama, we used to stay up late at night and talk about changing the world and how we were going to contribute to this massive societal change that we wanted to see. And and I was heading towards uh, seminary and becoming a pastor. And this friend of mine was heading towards professional world business and he was going to be making a lot of money and his goal was to fund ministries. And so he used to tell me with so much sincerity, you know, one day when I, when I make it financially, I'm going to pay off all of your debt, all of your student loans. I'm going to make sure that you are completely able to go out and not worry about anything, but just worry about being a pastor. And I'm grateful that even you know, as a 19-year-old kid, I was able to say, yeah, we'll see about that. <laughs> All right. But he was sincere. No, absolutely. I'm going to do it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, actually take care of you financially. And I was like, okay, okay. A lot of things need to go right for that to happen. 
But uh, lo and behold, I did become a pastor. And this friend, he really did make it financially. He's a very successful man and a, and a, and a dear man. And he really is funding all sorts of ministries. I mean, it's incredible what this guy's doing. But at the same time, I never received a check in the mail <laughs> to pay off my student loans. And I never expected it. But it always just struck me as one of those promises that were a little too good to be true. Well, as we consider Acts 2, up until this moment in history, Jesus had again and again told his disciples that something incredible was coming. He said, I'm going to go away. None of that may be really scary. I'm going to go away, but when I do, I'm going to send something that's going to be so good it's going gonna, it's gonna to sound too good to be true. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. Now back at the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus referred to John the Baptist saying, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Um, also in Acts, Jesus says that you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth but the question becomes, when? When will you become witnesses to the ends of the earth? Well, Jesus qualifies this by saying, you will become my witnesses to the ends of the earth when the Holy Spirit comes upon you in power, when you receive power from the Holy Spirit. And then there's other places like John 16, for instance, where Jesus is preparing his disciples for his death. They don't really understand it. And he says, don't worry. When I go away... I'm going to send the Spirit, which will be a better thing for you, a better reality for you to have the Spirit than to have my physical presence. The Spirit, He's going to lead you into truth. And He's going to convict you of sin. And He's going to do all these other great and glorious things. But then Jesus dies. So He's made all these big promises. And I have to imagine it, it probably felt a little bit like sitting in your college apartment with your, your friend and you, you talk these big talks and you, you make these big promises, but then life hits and all of a sudden those promises are up in the air. Jesus said he was going to send the Spirit. He's going to do all these great things, but then he dies. Gloriously, he rises from the dead. We see the resurrection. So, okay, the, all the promises, maybe they're back on the table. But then he ascends to the right hand of the Father, and we're left in that same spot. What do we do? Jesus made all these big promises. They seem too good to be true. What now? Well, disciples, they've been given a mission. Make disciples. Be my witnesses. Be my witnesses. Go to the ends of the earth. But wait for the Spirit. Wait for the power of the Spirit to come upon you. And here's the tension of the passage that we're looking at today. Will the Spirit come? Will the Spirit come? Will Jesus make good on His Word? Or will He prove Himself to be just like any of us who make rash promises, who say that we're going to do things when in reality we may have really good intentions but, but no ability to follow through? Or maybe we, we said something in the moment that we never really even meant is that Jesus? The disciples retreat to a room and they pray. 
which, by the way, is so instructive for us today. What did the disciples do in this moment, in this, this tension? Uh, Jesus is gone. Uh, he, the thing that he promised hasn't come yet. What do they do? They go and they pray. They devote themselves to prayer. They don't make plans and get busy. They pray, which in God's economy is doing something quite important. And then when the disciples are gathered, they hear a sound unlike anything that they have ever heard before. It's like an earthquake is localized in the room that they're in. It's like a waterfall is coming down from around them, all around them. I remember the third day I lived in Southern California, there was uh, the big earthquake that happened in 2008, if any of you remember that. And I had no idea what an earthquake felt like, but this one felt like it was like a helicopter had just lowered right over the, the little terrible apartment that I was living in at the time, and it shook the walls like crazy, and I thought something like this was happening. It was wild. But we see something incredible happening in this little room here in Acts 2. And then the disciples not only feel and hear something, they see something. Little flickers of fire appear over each one of their heads. And then it's like that fire goes inside of them and they start to speak in a way that none of them have ever spoken before. And what we're seeing here in the beginning of Acts 2 in these few verses is the Spirit arriving in power. We see the Spirit arriving in the form of wind and in the form of fire. And both of those are significant. Uh, the, the image of wind is supposed to make us to think is supposed to make us think back to images like God speaking life into Adam and Eve, or speaking life into an army of dry bones in the book of Ezekiel, for instance. The wind of God is that thing that brings life to others. And then we have the picture of fire, a picture that's supposed to make us think back to the countless times that fire has shown up in the Old Testament. Think of the, the burning bush in the book of Exodus. Think of the pillar of fire that God leads his people by in the book of Exodus. Fire represents God's purity, his presence, and his power. But now we see these images representing the Spirit, and they tell us without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus made good on his promise. He is faithful. He is true. The, the reality is he's not like us. He's so much better than us. And now the Spirit has arrived, and he's arrived in power, and we have a new and spectacular thing on our hands. God is with his people, presently in the most special way that you can imagine. His power, his presence, his life, they are with his people. The Spirit of God, which is God, now fills up the disciples. They are filled with the Spirit, or they are baptized in the Spirit, and this is a game changer. As I have considered this passage, my mind is fluttered off to things like the printing press. Mid-15th century, a man named Gutenberg created the printing press. Many of us are aware of that. But all of a sudden, 
after this invention of the printing press, a new world opened up to humanity. It used to be that if you wanted to write a book and have it, and have it reprinted, you had to write a bunch of books. You had to copy it over and over and over again. It took forever. It wasn't a thing that was feasible for very many to be able to scatter literature out there far and wide. But the printing press comes along, and all of a sudden it changes how we distribute information. Within 150 years after the printing press was invented, over 200 million new books were printed. And that's just new books. That doesn't count how many books have been reprinted and reprinted and reprinted and how many of those books contain gospel truths that God, according to his sovereign might, has used to spread the good news of Jesus Christ far and wide. In this invention, we see that, that the world was changed. My mind flutters off to people like Alexander Fleming and the invention of penicillin. Fleming accidentally discovered what would become penicillin in 1928. And it used to be that if you got an infection that was bad enough, and most infections are pretty bad, you'd just die. Or you would be maimed. An infection could be a devastating reality. Whereas today for us, because of the invention of penicillin, Because Alexander Fleming left his science experiments out on a table and went on vacation and came back and discovered mold, because of this crazy thing, now an infection for many of us is no big deal. Because this antibiotic was discovered, the world was changed, and modern medicine was changed. And you can keep going. Think about the the invention of the steam engine or the airplane, or the wheel, or the internet. Any number of things have changed the world. Before them, the world looked completely different. After them, the world looked completely different. Well, some theologians will point to Acts 2, and they will say that the Spirit arriving at Pentecost is one of the three biggest events in redemptive history. In my mind goes to biggest events in redemptive history means biggest events in history. Those are the same thing. The first is Jesus taking on flesh and being born. The incarnation. The incarnation. The second is Jesus' death and his resurrection. Reconciliation through propitiation. And Jesus conquering death. And then now we have this. The coming of the Spirit. This is an event that towers over the importance of the printing press. The discovery of penicillin, the discovery of a compass or the internet or any number of other important discoveries. We have one of the single most important historical events ever recorded right here. Now, why is this such a big deal? Well, not only... Does God tell us, not only does this tell us that God is faithful, not only does this reinforce our trust in God's steadfast character, his promises, he is who he says that he is, but it also tells us that God is not finished with us. God is not finished with us. And it tells us that God is with us. Do you see that this morning? God's not finished with us, and he is with us. He's at work. I want to focus 
on, on something for just a second. Because the Spirit has come, because we're in the age of the Spirit today, we can have the Spirit and we can have the benefits of having the Spirit. I've already referenced John 16. That chapter tells us that the Spirit reveals sin and righteousness. It says that the Spirit will reveal truth and the Spirit will guide us and the Spirit will point to Jesus and say, Him, He is the one. He ought to be glorified. Focus all of your attention, all of your effort and your energy on Him. He is worthy of it. Then you have passages like Romans 8 which describe life in the Spirit. And this chapter tells us the Spirit has set us free from the bondage of sin. The Spirit gives us life. The Spirit gives peace. The Spirit testifies to who we truly are in Christ. Romans 8 goes on to say, the Spirit dwells in us. And it says that the Spirit testifies to our adoption as children of God. In short, it tells us, that, tells us that the Spirit applies salvation and gives us what we need for life in Christ. Now, people who believe in Jesus, people who believe in Jesus have this Spirit. That's what the Bible teaches us. And Acts 2 tells us that this is not all theoretical. This isn't just theology talk. This isn't just something you learn about in Bible school or in seminary. Acts 2 was an actual date in history where the Spirit actually came in power upon Jesus' disciples, upon His people. And now, because of this incredible redemptive act in history, we too, who believe in Jesus, can have this Spirit. And we can have the Spirit apply our salvation to us today and forever. As you sit here this morning, do you realize that as the Bible says, if you are in Christ, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit? Do you realize that you have the Holy Spirit of God abiding in you? That you have God with you by His Spirit? Does your life reflect that? Does your gratitude reflect that? Does your confidence reflect that? I think many of us languish as we think about our relative insignificance in this life. But do we have any idea who we actually are? God has taken up residence in us. And so how can we think vile, self-deprecating, evil things about ourselves when the creators of the heavens and the earth lives in us. Further, how can we think vile, evil, terrible things about others who the holy God of all dwells in as well? God loves us. And so he has chosen to dwell in us, and that means something. We live in the age of the Spirit, and so that means that by grace through faith today, we have the Spirit. And those other brothers and sisters in Christ who've believed in Jesus, they too have the Spirit. That means something. So we're in the age of the Spirit. That means an innumerable amount of things, but it means something very specific for the church. The Spirit comes along, and it does something for the church that we have to be aware of. So that's what we want to build to. That's our second point. The church has been unleashed. Read with me again 
uh, starting with verse 5. Acts 2, verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in their own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to the Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? Brothers mocking said they are filled with new wine. So in these verses, we see the church set on fire and hit the streets. Somehow, the, the people who were meeting together, who were filled up with the Holy Spirit, they ended up in the streets among a whole bunch of people. They didn't sit still. They hit the streets. The whole bunch of people were there because of Pentecost. Pentecost was called Pentecost because it fell 50 days after the first Sunday after Passover. Originally, it was known as a feast and a time of offering first fruits to God. But as time went on, it more and more became associated with the giving of the law uh, to Israel at Mount Sinai. And so... It, it, it took on this incredible importance in the life of the Jewish people such that it drew people from all over. And so, so people converged on Jerusalem at Pentecost. And you can see this represented in, in verses 9 and 10, for instance. The Jewish people have been scattered all over the world to places like Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, and Phrygia, and Pamphylia, and Egypt, and Libya, and Rome. And so Jews from all of these places were now in Jerusalem for Pentecost. So that being the case, the disciples, they hit the street. They, they, they take to the street. And the text says it was like the sound of a multitude. So there was a commotion. This wasn't a, a, a quiet affair. Something big was happening. Something special was happening. Something significant was happening. What most likely happened was these different disciples, they stood up, and they spoke. And the miraculous part of this is that the different people in the crowd understood them in their native tongue. And so one by one they would stand up and they would, they would speak. And, and as they spoke these words, people from, from Pamphylia would hear them and go, oh, he's talking to me. Or people from Egypt would hear and go, oh, he's talking to me. People from Rome would hear and they'd say, oh, he's talking to me. It didn't matter what their native tongue was. It didn't matter if their native tongue was, was from this area or this area, this region or this region. Was this, as the disciples stood up and spoke, these Jewish travelers heard them. They comprehended them. We have a real-time fulfillment of Acts chapter 1 when Jesus said that his disciples would be Jesus' witnesses when they received the power from the Holy Spirit. God was working a powerful miracle in their midst. Now, here's where we can get lost in a passage like this. It's easy to read this story 
and to focus on the supernatural and make the miraculous event the point of the passage. And we can do one of two things, I think, here that are both equally dangerous and unhelpful. One, we can want to dismiss the miraculous nature of this and we can uh, we can diminish it or we can try to explain away the miraculous nature of this event and turn it into some naturalistic expression or something to be completely ignored. So we don't give the miracle that actually happened and is recorded in Acts 2 the attention that it deserves. Or, on the other hand, we can try to lean into the miraculous aspects of the story to the extent that we try to replicate those. And we try to make those the main thing that is happening. Oh, the church spoke in tongues to all these different sorts of people, so we should try to do the exact same thing for the sake of revival. Real quick, the Bible does point to a legitimate use of tongues, and we see that in, in 1 Corinthians. I am not going to touch that because I do not want to use your pulpit to talk about something that, uh, that I would much rather your elders speak to. But the, the sort of tongues that is being addressed in 1 Corinthians, I believe is a very different thing that is being addressed here in Acts chapter 2. This is a unique miracle. That there is something very special and very unique that is happening at this particular moment in redemptive history. And so, so those are two things that I think we want to avoid. We don't want to rob the story of its miraculous power or make the miraculous power the point of the story. No, God is doing something really important that we can't miss. And to get this, we have to see verse 11. We have to focus on verse 11. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. The mighty works of God. So what's being spoken of in these, in these tongues, in these, in these different languages? What is, is understandable from these disciples? The mighty works of God. Catch that. That is what the Spirit is declaring through these people, through these miraculous means, the mighty works of God. They were telling people about Jesus, about his life, and what he did in his life, about his death, about his resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. And as one scholar said here in Acts 2, the matter, the mighty works of God, the matter is more important than the medium. Okay? The matter, the content of their declaration, of their proclamation is more important than the medium. The medium can be important, but the matter is the significant thing that we want to focus on. The big important thing is that the church has been filled up by the Spirit and let loose to proclaim what? How great they are, that they can do cool miracles? No, the mighty works of God, in particular the gospel. It's almost like a retelling of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, which is particularly appropriate here at Pentecost. The church is rising up in the power of the Spirit, and they're communicating the truth about God's character, His worth, His plan, and so much more. Are any of you interested in tech by any chance? You work in tech, sort of a hobby horse, tech, reading up on tech, maybe like building computers or researching 
the latest, greatest cell phone. Um, for me, I really enjoy photography, and so I read up about cameras. Well, if you follow tech, what's the big problem right now as it relates to tech? Well, you can't get anything related to tech. That, that's the problem right now. Uh, there aren't many cell phones out there to buy. There aren't many computers. There aren't many PlayStation 5s. I mean, you could go down the list. Tech is just not available right now. You can't get the mirrorless cameras that I am so interested in. Why? Because there is a shortage of computer chips. That's why. There's a shortage of computer chips. These little chips are necessary to make our computers and our cameras and our video game systems and our cell phones and so much more work. And because there's a shortage in these chips, there is now a shortage of all of these different devices. And that's just the way it is right now. Well, over the past few months, I've seen several stories about this shortage and how it's affecting all these different industries and fields. But one of the surprising industries that, that this is affected that I wasn't aware of is the automotive industry. And so there's been these pictures that have come out of these giant parking lots. And, I, and I'm, I'm not speaking hyperbole. I mean, th these are parking lots as far as the eye can see of brand new cars. I mean, nice brand new cars just sitting there, completely useless. They can't be driven. They, they, they can't do anything. Why? Because there's a shortage of computer chips. And so they're sitting in these parking lots, and they're just looking nice, but completely useless. You know, they're painted really beautifully. They have really nice interiors, but they can't function as a car because they're lacking this little chip. But what happens if you were to come along and put that chip in those cars? All of a sudden, boom, they rev to life. All of a sudden, those computer systems start to fire. All of a sudden, those, those uh, charges start to spread out throughout the car. The engine revs up. The, the dashboard illuminates. And you could drive that thing off the lot. Next thing you know, that car is actually functioning like a car. It's no longer useless. It's no longer worthless. It's no longer just sitting there on the lot. Now, it is driving that's what I think we're seeing here in Acts chapter 2. Jesus has been preparing his disciples. He's been teaching them again and again that he's going to gather, together, gather to himself a people for himself. And he's going to do it through them. He, he can do it any number of ways. But him, in his wisdom and in his might, he has chosen to work through people, regular old people like his disciples. And Jesus said that his apostles, his disciples, his church was going to be the tool that he used to gather a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue to himself. But they couldn't do this by themselves. In themselves, they lack the competency, the skill, the power. They lack the things that are necessary to make a people for God's own possession. They were like those cars sitting in that giant parking lot, powerless in themselves, useless in themselves. They needed something outside of themselves to bring them to life. They needed the Spirit to come in power and give them life and strength and guidance to protect them from sin, to bring them into truth and so much more. Well, guess what? The Spirit came. 
The Spirit came. And the Spirit came, and when he did, he brought a holy fire to the church to make it so that the church was enabled to set out on their God-given task of making disciples, of proclaiming the mighty deeds of God in power so that real lives, hearts could actually change and be redeemed from the pit so that life can be worked into these hearts and so that people can know and enjoy God forever. Not under his wrath. Not under the penalty of their sin any longer. And so what did the church do at Pentecost? Having the Spirit, in the power of the Spirit, they went and they proclaimed the mighty deeds of God. They witnessed to Jesus' life and death and his resurrection. resurrection. They didn't stay in that room. They didn't stay in that parking lot. No, they set out. Again, I ask you, Do you recognize that if you are in Christ, that you have the Spirit of Christ in you today? Do you live your life as if the Spirit is actively living in you today? Do you live as if that sort of power is coursing through you today, that same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that that gave vigor to the early church so they could proclaim the mighty deeds of the Lord? Do you realize that that's in you too? And does that result in any sort of outward-focused living? the sort of living that engages with your neighbors? Do you realize that your proclamation is not just a proclamation of you with all of your weaknesses and all of your sin, but it is spirit-empowered and enabled proclamation? Or, being empowered and led by that spirit, do we ignore it, nevertheless, and allow our cities and our neighbors and our families and our friends to go without the knowledge of Jesus? I hope not. Not only that, but do we realize that the spirit that is in us is in our church, that is in this place. It's not just in you, but it's in the brothers and sisters that are around you, and it's empowering this church. And so now, this church, First Baptist Church of Hacienda Heights, can be part of shining the light of Christ. It can be a city set on a hill, a little outpost of heaven, Because the Spirit is here, not just with you as individuals, but with you as a body. That's an incredible reality worked because of what we see in Acts 2 here. Having the Spirit meant something for the early church. It it, it empowered them, it galvanized them, it sent them out. It enabled them to stand up and be willing to be thought of fools for Christ. It enabled them to stand up and lean on the Spirit for help to accomplish the task. Now today is an invitation for all of us to recognize the same Spirit is in our midst indwelling us, leading us, guiding us, and empowering us so that we might seek to embrace and act, embrace the Spirit and act accordingly. May God give us grace and mercy to do that. So what happens here in Acts 2? What's the result? What, what, what's the response to this proclamation? We need to see that as a final point this morning. And the final point is that results will vary. Results will vary. I want to draw your attention back to verses 12 and 13. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. 
So one of the wild things about this story is the response. The response to the age of the Spirit and the proclamation of the gospel in the power of the Spirit is a major theme of these verses. So we see five different responses in our story to the powerful working of the Spirit. So we see bewilderment in verse 5, amazement in verse 6, astonishment in verse 6, being amazed in verse 12, and being perplexed in verse 12. So lots of response to this incredible, miraculous thing that's happening in the church. Now these different responses are supposed to show us how significant of a thing is happening here at Pentecost. Yes, again, the Spirit is doing something special and unique and life-altering, and so people are to respond accordingly. For many who are present, this resulted in bewilderment, in amazement, in astonishment. And, and, and it, being perplexed, it led them to say, what does this mean? Which is, uh, I, I think we're supposed to read as a proper heart posture to the incredible things that are happening. There's an openness to what God is doing. What does this mean? Tell me more. That's the sort of response that the disciples wanted to hear. But uh, that's not how everyone would respond. Some would respond to the mighty deeds of God with openness, with faith, with repentance, because the Spirit is empowering that proclamation. And that's beautiful. The church is going to be built up because of what happens here in Acts chapter 2. And we see that as we continue through the book of Acts. But others are going to respond differently. One group responds favorably to the proclamation of the gospel, and one group responds less favorably to the proclamation of the gospel. teaches us that some saw all of this and they had hard hearts. They hardened their hearts toward this message. They plucked their ears. They refused to listen. They saw all of this powerful miracle working. They they saw these things that, that made no sense according to the way things normally work. And rather than being affected by that and being moved to faith in God, They tried to explain it away, rationalize it. These people must be drunk. Must have drank a bunch of wine, even though it's 10 o'clock in the morning. And that's the sad reality that we need to reckon with today. Some people aren't willing to hear. Some people will have hard hearts. Some people will have stopped ears. And we have to know that. We have to be prepared for that. What do we do? Having trusted in Jesus having been indwelt by His Spirit, in the power of the Spirit, we testify to the mighty deeds of the Lord, and then we leave the results up to God. We don't know the results this side of heaven, so we entreat, we, we, we continue to proclaim, we do everything we can in the power of God to love others by proclaiming the goodness and grace of Jesus. But we leave the results up to Him ultimately, and knowing that we can trust God. So as I consider this dear church, and I consider Acts 2, I see a passage of scripture that remind us, reminds us of who we are and what we possess presently. Who are we? We are a people who are called to participate in the increase of the gospel. Our job, your job, is to take the witness about Christ to the ends of the earth to your family, to your neighbors, to your cities, and yes, to the literal ends of the earth. We take the good news about Jesus, his mighty deeds, and we proclaim them near and far. 
And we do this as those who possess God himself. For God is with us. God is with you. The Holy Spirit is with you. If you take anything else from today, please know that God is with you by his Spirit. When you go home today, when you're driving to your house, when you're sitting with your children, when you're eating your food, when you're thinking about the world, know that God is with you because he loves you and because of what Jesus has accomplished for your sake. We can't lose sight of all of these things. We can't let the humdrum of our normal lives drown out the big picture, eternal and redemptive things we've been called to participate in. And so as we consider this passage, let us be stirred. And remember what we are to be about as the church. Stirred to be set out as those who have a purpose and an ability to make disciples who make disciples. And I'm praying for you. I'm praying that God would work this in you just as I pray that he work it in me and in my church. It's a, it's a mission that's worth participating in. So let me pray for you now. Father, thank you so much for this dear church and the hospitality they've shown me and so many others, and for the ways that they have consistently uh, entrusted themselves to your wonderful, sovereign, gentle, glorious care. Father, I pray that you'd bless them. And I pray, Lord, that you would work in them a rock-solid resolve and understanding to know that you are with them by your Holy Spirit, that because of Jesus, they can have that great blessing of the gospel. And I pray, Lord, that that would bless them today, that that would give them assurance, but it would also empower them to go and make disciples, whether that be as they talk to their children or to their spouses or to the younger folks in this church or to their neighbors or beyond. Lord, I pray that you would give them great grace and that you would lead them by your spirit. Help us now as we go. We pray this in Jesus' name. Brother, thank you so much for encouraging us uh, by teaching us and showing us 